Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's turn to Micah chapter 2. Micah chapter 2. Micah's after Jonah. Micah chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and then seize them and houses and take them away. They rob a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am planning against this family a calamity from which you cannot remove your necks, and you will not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. On that day they will take up against you a taunt and utter a bitter lament and say, We are completely destroyed. He exchanges the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To the apostate, he apportions our fields. Therefore, you will have no one stretching a measuring line for you by lot in the assembly of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come to this passage that you would feed us, that you would illumine our minds, that we might understand your word, that we would be... Uh, not merely hearers of your word, but doers of it. Father, we pray and ask for your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Be seated. All right, so a little bit of review as we come to the book of Micah. Micah was a prophet during what other prophet's ministry? Isaiah. Isaiah. Good job. Yep. During Isaiah, and what century did Isaiah and Micah prophesy in? 8th BC, yeah, the 700s of BC. What is going on at that time that receives the rebuke of the prophets, the elites, the rulers um, in uh, Samaria and in Jerusalem are setting aside God's law for their own self-interest? Right, setting aside God's law, they are not promoting true righteousness and justice. They are promoting themselves and what they want. Uh, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah are the kings that reigned during the ministry of Isaiah and Micah. The sins of the day are profiteering, right? unlawful, unfair profiting. We see that in our passage that we read um, this evening. Right, profiteering, and then just straight up injustice and straight up idolatry, uh, the sins of the people of Israel. Israel at this time is being besieged. Judah is looking on, seeing the northern kingdom get destroyed and dragged off into exile. And so Judah, uh, Isaiah and, and Micah are are pleading with Judah not to go the same way. It's God's warning 
uh, to them, that they repent of their sins so that the same thing doesn't happen to them that happened with Israel. And of course, we know that they do not repent, and they also are dragged off the land. Chapter 1, you remember that Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom Israel, and Jerusalem, which is the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah, are called out. Uh, the big cities are called out as leading the whole nations into sin. And that is not something that we have to contemplate very long to think about uh, the parallel uh, today and just the, um, the, the, lead, the, the promotion of, of, of sin that proceeds out of the, the major cities of our own nation as well. Right, I could start talking about the division between blue and red, right? I mean, that has something to do with this, and that is a point that Mike is making, that this, the big cities are leading all of the cities of the nations into sin. Uh, Michael laments this in uh, verse 8 of chapter 1, and then God warns the cities of Judah, 8 through 16 of that chapter. He's walking through these different cities and different areas and warning them. And at the end of it, he says, make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of the children of your delight. Extend your baldness like the eagle for they will go from you into exile. Right, so he's, that, that was a, a sign of humiliation, a sign of repentance if you shave the head. And um, he's calling for that. And then chapter two, we come to. And we'll look at this this evening. And you notice that first word. That first word of this um, section of scripture is woe. A woe is an announcement of the wrath of God or of impending doom. When woes are pronounced, you sit up in your seat and you listen. This is the prophet pronouncing God's judgment against the people. God's judgment upon uh, sinful mankind is announced. There are other places in scripture, all throughout the prophets, we read of woes, right? And we read of curses in the book of Deuteronomy if the people leave their God and serve other gods. Uh, in, in Revelation 8, the last book of the Bible, we read this woe. Woe, it's a triple woe, right? So when, when things are tripled up in scripture, you know that it's the, the ultimate of that thing. And so it says, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound, right? So that the, the, the judgment blasts of the angels being a woe on mankind. And then, of course, Jesus himself pronounces many woes, doesn't he? He is a prophet coming to denounce and announce, denounce the people and their sins and announce God's judgment. He, he reserves many of his woes for what group? Yeah, the Pharisees who had, who had upended everything, who had turned the law on its head as a mechanism for salvation when it was never meant to be that. And, um, and so... Here's the woe, one of the woes that 
Jesus pronounces against them. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. What, a, what an intense uh, judgment against the, people, the Pharisees that not only do they not enter in themselves, but they are not content for others to enter into the kingdom and hinder them coming in. And God rightfully pronounces his woe against them. And so every woe in Scripture is a reminder of God's holiness. That's what it's a reminder of. He does not... He is not, let's say it this way, he is not capable of overlooking sin, right? Sin offends him. I mean, sin, sin uh, offends the holiness of God and the holy God, right? And, and he looks over the, the, the world and, and God, scripture says, has indignation every day as he looks upon the sins of the world. His image bearers, right, all of his people are called to honor him and to give him thanks. And when they do not, he's angry. God is angry. It's not something that we contemplate much in our softened religion in America. Right? God is angry with the wicked every day. But that is undeniably true. It is the testimony of Scripture, and it just makes sense. He is holy, and his holiness abhors unholiness. Right? So he is angry. His anger will one day find its release. Right? We read in the book of James that the wicked are being fattened up for the day of slaughter. Right? One day, God's anger will completely find its release. Now, will you be found in Jesus on that day, hiding in that hiding place that God has provided? The one hiding place that God has provided for his wrath is his son. Who what? Who bore his wrath upon the cross? Right? Are you going to be clothed in that alien righteousness so that when God's full wrath and final wrath, that great day of judgment comes, you're clothed in his righteousness. And in some sense, you are rejoicing at God's final justice being poured out. You're rejoicing that everything that day will be set straight. Meanwhile, the wicked are calling for the mountains and the hills to fall on them because they cannot bear they cannot bear even a, a half a second of the wrath of God upon them, their shoulders. Right, so this, this is the God that we worship. He is angry, and that is a part of his righteousness, and he is also love. And those things are not incompatible. Those things are perfectly consistent in God. Now, the woe is pronounced, and who is it pronounced upon? Woe to whom? And it says that the woe is coming to those who scheme iniquity, 
who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and then seize them and houses and take them away. They rob a man in his house, a man in his, his inheritance. And so the woe is pronounced on those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. Right? Somebody who, who is not living to please God in any way. Um, if we live to please God on our beds, we should be praising and thanking him and working out how we can be righteous. But the wicked just scheme on their beds how they can dishonor God, how they can promote themselves, right? how, how, how they can serve their idols, which are very demanding, right? which require them to use their bodies and um, indulge their sensuality in extreme ways. Right? Those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. And to scheme, that, that word there stands out to me. They're, they're planning for, they're contemplating, they're working up, they're working toward some, some final state. Right? They're, they're scheming. And then morning comes... They've spent the whole night scheming how they're going to oppress or how they're going to steal or how they're going to um, indulge their fantasies. And then the morning comes and they put their um, nighttime contemplations into practice. Right? They have the power to do it, it says, so there is nothing holding them back. And that's the problem. Right? The wicked have nothing holding them back from their wickedness. When we have nothing to hold us back from our wickedness, then it is, it is, um, then the end will be wickedness, right? And when we have nothing to hold us back, like warnings from God, like the preaching of the word, like this passage in your life tonight, Right? God is being very gracious to you because he's warning you from your wickedness. The wicked who scheme on their beds all night don't give heed to the word of God. Right? But God is warning you, and God warns us from his, his spirit that he puts within us as well. He brings conviction. Um, there are warnings from the law that's written on the heart. Right, The warnings that God gives us because we... We have a conscience that's formed by the Spirit of God. All those warnings. But if those were taken away, if those things were taken away, if the ministry of the Word and the ministry of the Spirit and the work of the law uh, written on the heart and the conscience were taken away, we would follow our wicked and deceptive heart's desires without fail, all the time, everywhere. The flesh would lead us about by a hook in our noses. Even now, with the Spirit, right, we find that there's a battle between the flesh and the Spirit. Can you imagine if all that ministry is taken away and you're just given up? There's no fight. There's no battle. You're just taken around by the flesh, by your wickedness, all day long and all night long. And so even, even if you think your contemplations on your bed are noble and good and you're trying to serve humanity... In God's sight, it's all wickedness, right? Because it's not for his glory. It's for, his, it's for that man's own glory. Calvin makes the point that God ordains the night for rest. 
which is a wonderfully simple point, right? The night is for rest, but what are these people doing, these elites in Israel, in Jerusalem? Right? They're working out on their beds iniquity. They're contemplating how they're, gonna, how they're going to oppress people, even, even though they may think that it's not oppression. Right? But Calvin says, you know what? The night is for something, and it's not for scheming evil. It's for sleep. Apostle Paul makes a similar point in 1 Thessalonians 5. Right? For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober. Right? We're of the day, and we use our nights in a certain way. We use our nights for sleeping, not for drunkenness, not for the scheming of wickedness. We use it to sleep. So contemplate how you use your nights. There's an application you didn't think would come out of Micah. How do you use your nights? I have never been a person who can stay up extremely late. Why are you laughing? Because I fall asleep at 9.30? I am an old man. Oh, man. But contemplate how you use your nights. Is it... um, You know, many men will work during the day and then they'll come home and they'll spend time with their families and they'll um, do that work of ministry often. And then nighttime is me time, right? Nighttime is when I can do what I want to do without inhibition, without interruption, right? The kids are down and now it's just me time. And that is often bad time. Right? That's bad time for many of us. That's when we um, start uh, searching in the nooks and crannies of the internet. Right? Or, or we begin contemplating evil. It's the quiet of the night and we're left to our thoughts and we begin scheming revenge on somebody who has offended us. Right? Or, or just that sort of contemplation. Um, you know, others may be tempted to drink. Others may be tempted just to sit yourself, squat down in a pile of conspiracy theories and indulge your mind. And you do that at night, and Fox News helps you. But your night is for rest. It's not for plotting revenge. It's for sleep. God has made... And I, I agree for those who work second, third shift, right? Um, the night was made for rest. It was not made for work. And people who work those shifts, I think it's a, an, a terrible burden upon them and their families, right? And as soon as you can, you want to be out from underneath that and, and live um, not like a, a vampire, yeah. A nocturnal animal, I was thinking, not a vampire, but... We'll go with that, right? And so um, contemplate how you use that time from, say, 9 p.m. to 2 a.m. I can't imagine staying up that late, but um, some of you love that time, and you get your three hours of sleep at night, and somehow you function, and um, it will catch up to you eventually. But 
many of us would be better workers, we would be better spouses, we would be even better Christians if we just went to bed early and woke early. We would be better Christians, right, to leave off that time and to actually rest our bodies, and that is very important. But the wicked don't rest at night, the wicked scheme. The wicked scheme. Um, This is true especially of the single, right? You have more alone time in general, and so you have more me time to contemplate revenge and your sins and the indulgence of your flesh and those things. And so the single have to be very disciplined about this. Um, After you have children, when they're in bed, often you just crash and fall asleep and And so there's no, you don't even care about any sort of me time. But if, but the single have this time, and and so you should be careful about it, and you should, uh, you should regulate your evenings well, and you should pray that God gives you good rest and sleep. Okay. Um, Calvin says. When it comes time to lie down, if we want God to bless our sleep, then let us pray that God will so grant us his grace that we might lie down with a clear conscience. That's how to sleep well, right? It is hard to sleep when you have a bad conscience. It's very difficult to sleep with an unclear conscience. He goes on, he says, in the same way, that the body ceases to work once it lies down to rest. May God equally purge us of evil affections and self-imposed worries. Consequently, may our Lord grant us such a spiritual rest that we cease to be tormented by evil thoughts. First and foremost, that it is the kind of rest we should seek, praying that God so grant us his grace that our soul may be so conjoined to the body that the two rest together, and that our sleep be of such a purity of conscience that no one ever became hurt or suffer loss because of us. Now, isn't that a sweet image? He's, he's talking about the spirit and the body being so conjoined in rest that you're not only just sleeping and resting your body, but you're resting your soul with an ease of conscious, conscious, conscience. Right? You're resting your soul while you're resting your body. And that can't be if you have spent your evening scheming evil. It just can't be. You will not, you will, one, your body won't rest well, and two, your conscience will keep your soul awake. Even your dreams will be wicked in those instances. So again, who, who is he talking about? Specifically, now, to, to dig in a little bit deeper on these first few verses, he's talking about the rich and the powerful. That's who he has in mind here. Remember, it's the rich and the powerful, the elites of Jerusalem and Samaria who are afflicting the people. And why do I know it's the rich and the powerful? Because it says this, when morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. They have the means right, which is usually connections and money to do what they have schemed on their beds is evil, 
right? It is in the power of their hands. And literally in the Hebrew, this, this is for their hand is for a God. For their hand is for a God. And it's just saying they have the power to do exactly what they've schemed. Now think of our tech companies, right? Think of recently, this example, think of our tech companies and how they crusade for what should I say? How they crusade for... Anybody want to fill in the blank? Yeah, certainly their self-interest, but it's mostly along the lines of gender-bending, transgender causes, right? And, and that's not just transgender causes. That's hating the biblical view of male and female, right? It is to, it is to say that... Um, it is to pronounce an objection to what God has said is good, right? And so they crusade for these things, and they've got the platform, they've got the money, they've got the reach, they've got other elites along with them in cahoots with all of this, and so they have the will, they have it within their power to oppress the religious, and they will do so. And they will continue to do so. Now, you know, now instead of just buying a good cookie, right, the Oreo double stuff is a good cookie. The, the originals are not so good, but the double stuff is, is really good. But now, now you can't just buy a good cookie Along with buying that good cookie, you're supporting their ideology, their ideology when, when you make that purchase because they've made it clear that they, uh, I mean, they're putting rainbows on their, their packaging and they're tweeting out things that say that transgender people exist and all these things. So now, now you have to contemplate that I'm buying, I'm promoting this ideology while just, I want a good cookie, right? To watch a professional sporting event. Think of professional sports, right? No longer can you watch a baseball game. No longer can you watch excellent athletic events. But you are forced to tacitly accept whatever social issue they're promoting, right? And so um, <clears throat> it's brilliant it's brilliant, a brilliant move by a culture that hates God. It is truly scheming on their beds and then using their power to put it into practice. It's brilliant because it, it is going to squeeze us out of the picture. That's the effect it will have. It will squeeze us out of the picture, but God, is, God, God cares for his people. right? God will continue to care for his people, even though they may go through extreme suffering, his judgment will come one day. And those things will be revealed for what they really are. So what are we to do? Um, what are we to do in this? Well, we, we don't plot wickedness in return. Um, we do unto others as, as you know, we would have them do unto us. We put into practice the second table of the law, which is about living in loving other people, right? 
And um, that's what we do, and we trust that God will, will work. Um, Calvin says, the rich are not more evil than others. They just, they just possess the means to do evil. They're not more evil than others. They just have the means to fulfill. It is wonderful when you don't have the means to fulfill your wickedness, isn't it? It's so helpful, right? It's helpful. It, I mean, how many people through the, the Christian how many people through history have said, it is wonderful that the Lord kept me poor, right? Because he knew that if I were rich, I, I would have gone after the things of the world. I would have made shipwreck of my faith, right? Wonder, it's wonderful that God has not, not given me uh, much. How many uh, pastors and missionaries and, and faithful Christians have we heard uh, say that? You don't hear that much anymore. Um, but certainly when you go back and read the testimony of, of people who struggled greatly, they, they still thank God for it and say, wow, it kept me from so much. It kept me from having the ability to um, pursue my imagination. What are the rich and powerful doing in Jerusalem? They're taking property that is not theirs. They're taking land and houses not belonging to them. They're taking a man's inheritance by force. In other words, they're breaking the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. And they're breaking the tenth commandment, you shall not covet. They have and they are not satisfied, right? Whereas the righteous don't have and are satisfied. At least that's how it's supposed to work, right? They have and aren't satisfied and they want more of this earth, right? They want they want their they want to have um, much of the world, and so they covet. And in Isaiah, we read we read this um, Isaiah chapter five, verse eight. He describes this this way: same same situation. Woe to those who add house to house. And join field to field until there is no more room so that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. Right? These, these, these greedy elites are taking everything that they can get. And it all derives from their covetousness. Watson, Thomas Watson says about covetousness, all the danger is when the world... <laughs> covetous arises and it's a danger... Because the world gets in the heart. When the world gets in the heart, right, and you're not doing what John the Apostle said, which is to hate the world and love God. When you're not working on that, when you're not pursuing that, when you're just letting your affections go out toward the world and the things of the world, well, then covetousness is is following close behind and will devour you. He defines covetousness, Watson does, this way with these six particulars, and so maybe this will help you examine your own hearts. He defines covetousness this way. When, when a man's thoughts are wholly taken up with the world, part one. Two, a man may be said to be given to covetousness when he takes 
some more pains for getting earth than for getting heaven. Third, a man may be said to be covetousness when all his conversations are about the world. Four, a man may be said to be covetousness when he, is, when he so sets his heart upon worldly things that for the love of them he will part with heavenly. For the wedge of gold he will part with the pearl of price. Fifth, when a man may be said to be given to covetousness when he overloads himself with worldly business. Just when he overloads himself with the things of, the, of business rather than pursuing God and uh, his word. And then six, he says, man may be given uh, to covetousness whose heart is so set upon the world to get it, he cares not what unlawful means he uses. And that's exactly what is being described here. They don't care what unlawful means. They'll steal a man's inheritance. They'll take his house from him. They will unlawfully seize fields. But it says in verse 2, they covet those fields and then seize them. And so um, covetousness is a mother sin, right? It is a Watson goes on in that chapter on his the Ten Commandments to describe he walks through all the Ten Commandments and says that the ten, when you break the Tenth Commandment, you've broken all the other commandments along with it. It's a mother sin, he says. Um, <clears throat> Calvin says there are some people who are so greedy that if they had it within their power, they would gladly uh, lock up the sun in their treasure chests. They are so envious of their neighbors that they grieve over the fact that the sun shines on all alike. So greedy that they would just take the sun out of the sky, lock it up so that their neighbor doesn't get the benefit of that warmth and that light and that goodness. What is at the root of the socialist Marxist uprising in our country? covetousness, right, Why, whereby we could lose our property. It's covetousness. It's unchecked covetousness, right? <clears throat> it's not good self-interest. Self-interest is a good thing. We, we pursue caring for our families and caring for our bodies and providing for ourselves, and self-interest is good, but covetousness is wicked, Right? And if that's what's motivating your work, if that's what's motivating your view of economics, right, of work generally speaking, then it's wickedness. Uh, involuntary wealth redistribution is born of covetousness. <laughs> right? I mean, we're, we're wicked in our hearts. We're lazy. We really would like to have other people's money. So we're all anticipating our next stimulus check, right? Uh, 
Uh, okay, I'm, I'm having thoughts, but they're going to stay in my head. Okay, um, Jerusalem's elites determined they would be better holders of property, better holders of houses, better holders of lands. You know, perhaps in the name of a better future. And God is not happy with that. God wants all of his children to have that land that he gave to his children. Right? The elites have better ideas for it. They, they think they have um, a right to it, first of all, but then they think they would be better stewards of that. And that, um, that is not the case. What do the, the meek inherit? Oh, isn't that wonderful? Right? We read of that in, what is it, Matthew chapter 5? Where is Matthew 5? Yeah, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Right? And that is exactly what these oppressors are not being. They are destroying others. They are, they are tearing away inheritance, most of which would have been land and vineyards. Right? And they are tearing it away. They are not gentle. And so God will take away what they've seized in the end, and he will hand it to the gentle. And the gentle will inherit the entire earth. Next, therefore thus says the Lord, verse 3, therefore thus says the Lord, God's judgment comes, right? Calamity, pride will be broken by an evil time, it says. All property will become property of pagan nations, apostates. So God is going to discipline these elites by taking all the land away and giving it to pagans, giving it to the Assyrians, right? Giving it to this occupying force. They're going to take all the land now, and so nobody's going to have any of the land that he gave to them, and especially those who are committing, uh, who are profiteering, right? And so this punishment fits the crime. This punishment fits the crime. They have stolen lands, and so their land will be stolen. And that is the way that God brings about his judgment uh, shortly in the future. And so their covetousness, which leads to unlawful gain, stealing, and oppression, receives God's woe. And then the people wail, the wailing of the people, verses 4 and 5. And that is the end of when God's woes are pronounced, the only thing left for anybody to do is to wail, is to cry out. And they say, on that day they will take up against you a taunt and utter a bitter lamentation and say, we are completely destroyed. He exchanges the portion of my people, how he removes it from me to the apostate, he apportions our fields. Right? They've been, the, the elites are saying this, right? To the apostates, our fields, they're not their fields, they're the people's fields. They've stolen them and now they're objecting to God that this apostate nation has done exactly what they did. And so, <clears throat> and so finally, therefore, you will have no one stretching a measuring line for you by lot in the assembly of the Lord. And, and a measuring line or a measuring rod was a way of, of um, 
marking off property, right? Yeah, still to this day. Um, it's the, it was the way of marking off uh, property, and he's saying you will not have, you will have no one stretching a measuring line for you by lot in the assembly of the Lord. This, this land is going away. And this is God's punishment. This is something that we have to come to terms with as we think about this passage. Who's punished? Who did the sinning? The leaders. The leaders sinned and all the people were punished. As a nation goes, so goes its people. God has made his world in such a way that federalism, federal headship, is everywhere. And so if we don't care about the sins of our elites and the sins of our leaders, we're foolish because judgment will come through the sins that they commit. Right? We just don't have a tendency today to think of anybody but ourselves. Right? Christianity is like an individual faith, and, and if I know Jesus, I'm good. But God works through groups and nations and peoples. Right? And his judgment will come upon this nation because of the sins of our leaders. And that, just, that should cause us all to get on our knees, to pray, to fast, to repent, to ask for God's mercy. Right? It really should be a thing that motivates us to humility and crying out to God that he would be merciful to us. And so if it hasn't motivated you that way, let it motivate you that way now. Cry out for our nation, for the nations of the world. There is great wickedness in, in not just our nation, but in the nations of the world. I mean, receive the, the testimonies of missionaries from around the world. And you'll just be, you'll be shocked by the oppression, shocked by the wickedness of, of rulers, especially. And God sees it. God knows it. God judges and sees all things that come to pass. And so we pray that God is merciful to us and, and we call for uh, those who are in positions of leadership to know him, to conform to his word. That's Micah. That's what Micah has for us tonight. So when you get home, put the kids to bed, say a few prayers, and then get some good sleep. And then wake up with a clear conscience tomorrow morning and do his work. Do the things he's called you to. Right? Don't use this evening as, as me time. Use it as sleep time. Right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your exhortations to us through the prophet Micah, by your Holy Spirit, from 2,700 years ago. Lord, what a treasure it is that we have your will written down for us. Father, we ask that you would have mercy upon us, mercy upon our nation, that those who rule over us would repent of their wickedness, that they would come to you, and that they would show us righteousness, that they would lead us in repentance, that they would lead us in the fear of you. Lord, do this work. We, we 
it's hard to even conjure up the faith. Uh, But, Lord, we know all things are possible with you. And so we ask for this in Jesus' name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.